Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, I talk to Patrick Schreiner, who teaches up at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. We talk about a lot of different things, but primarily we talk about the kingdom of God. That's something that Patrick has done a lot of work on in the Gospel of Matthew. Talk about the ascension and how that relates to everything. We also talk at the end about sports because he and I both love the NBA and the NFL. And he is a Minnesota Vikings fan. He is a Trailblazers fan, I guess, because he's in Portland right now. I'm assuming he wasn't a fan before then. But we talk about all that, and he has his own strong hot takes on what happened with the Trailblazers and what happened with the Vikings a few years ago. So if you like sports, you will like that part of the podcast, which we do every once in a while toward the end, just in case you don't really want to talk about sports. But we will uh, talk about it anyway because I have fun doing it, and you're always welcome to hop off before the sports ball conversation starts. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with Patrick. This podcast was brought to you by B&H Academic. You can check out all of B&H Academic's books and their past and future offerings at bhacademic.com. And our second sponsor, the Christian Standard Bible, csbible.com. You can go find out about that Bible translation. You can sign up for their email list. You can search the Bibles that they have already published and some things that are forthcoming. There's a tab on there for ministry leaders who want to uh, compare Bible translation uh, verses to each other. If you want to see a PowerPoint and some ways that you can introduce the CSB to your church, they've got all that there at csbible.com. And now here's my conversation with Patrick. But first, no big deal. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Good to be here. All right, man. I wanted to start it off on a lighter note. On the first episode ever of this podcast, your dad called himself a hipster. Your dad, Tom Schreiner, who teaches at Southern Seminary. I <laughs> joked because he has a celiac disease, so he can't eat gluten. And I said, it's because yeah. you're, you know, it's, it's medical, not because you're a hipster. And he said, well, it makes you think I'm not a hipster. So I thought, you know, what better <laughs> than to address the guy who calls himself a hipster with his son, who actually is a hipster, which is you living in Portland and your hair and your dress and everything else. So, uh, so yeah. how's it feel to be a real hipster in the Schreiner family? Well, you know, if hipster is defined by retro, then my parents are definitely hipsters because <laughs> they're so retro that they definitely fit that bill. Yeah, your dad, your dad's still wearing the stuff that's cool. <laughs> that's right, and they buy all their their clothes at uh, thrift stores. So <laughs> they're they're really listening to Macklemore a lot. I think that's his new favorite artist. So. You know, in one in one way, they're not hipsters at all because they're not trying to be, and all hipsters must try to be hipsters. Mm. But in another way, they're like the true hipsters. So yeah, I, mean, I guess I'm including my mom too. So um, I guess I'm just following in their footsteps in some sense. <laughs> well, living in Portland, you are you have to. I mean, you have to know hipster culture as well as anybody if you're going to actually. Got to be city. all things to all people. Yeah. Here's Amen. the deal, though. You all think of me as a hipster. You should come out to Portland. I'm like so far away from it now. <laughs> yeah, you're you're not you're not a cool hipster in Portland. <laughs> No, I mean I'm not. I'm not joining in that wonderful bike ride. You can just look that up. Maybe don't don't look up that bike ride. But no, I don't join that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, but you would be crushing the hipster game in like Idaho. So yes, in Idaho and even in Kentucky, you yeah. know where my parents are. I I definitely am crushing it there. But here, I'm way behind the time. So <laughs> all right, well let's talk a little bit first of just about your faith journey, how you became a Christian, and then uh, how you became a scholar. Yeah. So um, I was raised in a Christian home, 
and we went to great churches, grew up in John Piper's church in Minnesota. And so my first kind of faith experience was just with my parents and at local churches. And very early on, um, I said a prayer that uh, asked Jesus to come and live in my heart because basically I think I was scared at that point to <laughs> go to hell and you know how it works with kids. But I honestly think even though I could say some negative things about um, that form of asking Jesus even into my heart at this point, uh, I think the Lord graciously used that. And I think a lot of people who are in church today have similar experiences where the Lord is working on your life and your young heart. And um, so, so I became a Christian early on. I felt convicted of sin um, and I was baptized at a fairly young age. I think it was around 12, 12 I was baptized at Bethlehem Baptist and um, I was reading the scriptures uh, grew up in, as I, as I said, a great gospel home who um, continually we read the Bible every night. One of the things we did uh, after dinner was we just opened the scriptures and read it. Now, I'm sure half the time I wasn't listening, but <laughs> half the time maybe I was listening. So um, your spirit, anyways, your I went heart to high was listening. Your spirit and your heart was listening. <laughs> it was osmosis. Um, <laughs> you, you know, I, 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 when you grow up, you know what you're father does but you don't really know what your father does too you know how that works and so um i knew my dad did stuff with the bible but i wasn't entirely sure honestly when people would come over because we'd have all these seminary students coming over all the time for dinner and uh, i just remember thinking i wish these people would talk about sports more than these <laughs> theological <laughs> and so i mean if now that i'm at the place where i am i kind of wish i would have hung out more and i probably went downstairs to watch the vikings or whoever it was while they were talking atonement theology or whatever it was um but you know at a, at a young age i really just wasn't as interested into the depths of theology and um but at, at the same time i think i picked up some things along the way um just through these conversations that they would have and anyway so i went into high school following the lord um actually in high school i started backsliding some and this gets i don't want to get into too much of the complications but i went into college um, really wanting to party and not following the Lord hardly at all at that mm. point. And um, so in the midst of that, as I went to college, I just started to realize that that lifestyle was quite empty. Um, it was pretty much go out, drink a little, and have fun with your friends. And I thought, is this all there is to life? Part of the reason I saw that was in college, you'd see like 30, 35-year-olds coming back just <laughs> trying to live a life still. And I was like, man, I do not. I do not want to do that. Uh, and I kind of started to think, well, is this all there is? And um, a part of that was me, I think, just growing up in a Christian home. I wanted to explore what the world had to offer me. Um, part of it, maybe I was a little bit frustrated with the Christian world, um, kind of felt like I was in a bubble and just wanted to see what was out there. So went to college doing that. And um, through the prayers of people, through the Lord working on my heart, he really drew me back to himself. And I got involved in Campus Crusade for Christ, started reading the Bible uh, more. Just uh, through that time, I'd really stopped reading the scriptures. I, I still went to church, um, but I'd stopped reading the scriptures on my own. And as I got involved in Crusade, um, they plugged me into leadership. And then I went on staff at a church in college and started leading a Bible study and a Sunday school. And this church we went to, uh, again, I don't know how many details you want, but the church we went to was a really old like Baptist church. And um, the guy who pastored it was a graduate of Southern Seminary. And it was uh, a lot of older folks at the church. 
and about four younger adults, uh, younger college students actually started going and I was one of them. And by the time we left, there was about uh, 60 older folks and then about 150 college students wow. or 100 college students, somewhere around there. So it was really neat actually to see the Lord use kind of these two different spheres of life and we really served one another. And um, so, so I, I got involved in ministry and through college, I realized, man, I really want to do ministry, discipling, sharing my faith, serving the church. I found myself leaning more towards that rather than my schoolwork, which uh, I was doing news editorial journalism, which I really enjoyed too. But uh, if I had a spare moment to do something, I'd usually do more work on the Bible study I was leading that week or the sermon or whatever it was. So um, came out of college, wanting to go into ministry. My dad taught at Southern. So I was like, hey, this makes sense. Um, so moved back up to Louisville, got married to Hannah, went into seminary thinking pastoral ministry. And then as I started to study, um, really, I started asking just more specific questions and was encouraged by multiple professors and multiple people to continue my studies. And even though people told me, you know, you shouldn't get a PhD unless it's the only thing you can do, kind of like Spurgeon said about preaching or pastoring. Yeah. I felt like at that point, I just wanted to do it. And I didn't really care if I got a job or not teaching. It was more that this is, I wanted to keep studying and whatever that turned into, well, I didn't really care. I just wanted to keep studying. So um, I ended up staying at Southern and doing my PhD there. And then five years ago, as I was finishing up my dissertation, Western Seminary called me and I moved out here when I was just finishing up kind of my last chapters of my dissertation. So. Well, that's a long, long version of it, and you can cut whatever you want to. But all that to say, I really didn't plan on being uh, in scholarship uh, in the academy from an early age, even though my father was a part of it. Mm -hmm. I kind of felt like I fell into it in one sense. Um, in another sense, I'm still involved in my church in terms of an elder, and I've always wanted to keep one foot in the local church. I just didn't see myself as, at this point, as like a senior pastor. Um, I felt like as I continued to learn who I was, I, I felt more gifted in maybe the teaching realm than in like a lead pastor role. Now, obviously there's many more positions in a lead pastor role, but I just felt drawn a little bit more to the academy in that sense, mm -hmm. uh, just in terms of my own giftings. And then I enjoyed to, and I really enjoy writing. So um, all those things kind of put me this way, but at the same time, I've, I've uh, through this whole time, I've just been very involved in local church because I, I just truly believe you really can't do scholarship without uh, yeah. engaging people every day and what they're going through. So I, I just feel like if you divorce yourself from that, um, your work's going to be divorced from those people yeah. uh, and what they're going. So And your dad yeah. models that well, too. So, yeah, he does. OK, yeah. so speaking speaking of him, we won't we won't spend too much more time on him, but. Growing up as a scholar, I was thinking, you know, there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast are younger scholars, seminarians, have probably younger kids. And so we have stories of the pastor's kid. We have stories of the missionary's kid. You're a pastor's kid because your dad was a pastor for a lot of that time. But as a scholar's kid, yeah. have you, did you feel any unique pressure there to, like, even when you went to seminary, you know, especially going to the seminary that, that he teaches at, where he's sort of a legend at this point, um, did you feel any, any unique pressures or concerns that you had going to school there, being in a scholar's home, now, you know, five years in the scholarship, being uh, kind of your own man. How has that, how has that played into your life? Yeah. Yeah. I've never really felt a lot of pressure to be like, like him or to do what he's doing. Um, honestly, he's just been great, a great role model and example for me. 
uh, there, <laughs> there was a funny story in seminary. Uh, I was taking Dr. Peter Gentry's advanced Greek grammar course. And we were studying. This is the only story I can remember in terms of thinking, oh, yeah, he totally called on me because uh, I'm Tom Schreiner. <laughs> That's so. great. Um, anyways, we were taking advanced Greek grammar and we were translating the epistle of Diognetus. So the first time I had stepped out of the New Testament to do Greek. And we came, we came to the hardest verse, he said, in all of Diognetus. And of course, he called on me. And I was just, and he, and he said something like, this is, I laugh with him about it. I mean, I, this is why I'm saying this publicly. But he was like, well, you probably know how to do this, Patrick. And I was like, well, why would you assume that I would know how to do this? Like, I, I, it's not like I, I, that my dad, my dad taught me Greek while I was a child or anything, or that I learned by osmosis. I'm learning like everybody else here. So I just, that was a funny story for me. Just I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I, I have no idea how to do this. You're shattering dreams. Like, we all we all want to believe that Tom Schreiner taught all his kids Greek at 15. You're shattering people's right, uh, perceptions. Right. They just sometimes are. The only thing I felt is sometimes they assumed I knew things that I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm just like with everybody else here, just learning this stuff. So, yeah. um, but I've, I've never felt really any pressure, um, even in terms of writing. Like, uh, I didn't feel going into teaching that. I had to write, um, unless I was at a school that made me write, um, because he wrote, but rather, uh, currently I've been writing because it's what I want to do. And yeah. so, um, I mean, of course, in the back of my mind, I, I do want to beat him. I want to publish more than him, but uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Good luck. You got I'm a long way ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. No, I just, yeah, I, I just really honestly respect him in terms of his work in the church and his scholarship um, and the way that he interacts with views that are different than his um, and what he's written. And so actually, oh, well, I probably shouldn't tell his story, but maybe I will. I just read, I had never read his book, The Law and Its Fulfillment, but I was doing a little talk on The Law and Its Fulfillment. And I noticed that he published it when I was like seven or eight and it was with Baker. And I'm about to publish my first book with Baker and my, my daughter's um, eight years old. So I just thought that was really yeah, that interesting was cool. uh, to see that. So anyways. Well, now you got to publish every six months for the next 20 years and uh, mark them all by your <laughs> kids' ages. I don't think I can keep up with that pace. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about some of your work. Um, you recently published a book called The Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross with Crossway. And, um, you know, you did a lot of your PhD work, I know, in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Kingdom of God. So talk through a little bit just your interest in the Kingdom of God, what you were doing in that book, uh, how you're trying to, um, you know, influence scholarship or speak in the scholarship on the topic. Yeah. So that that's a it's in the short studies in biblical theology series that Crossway is doing, which I really like. If you look at um, the new studies in biblical theology that Carson edits with IVP. Really, it's a shortened version of that. Yeah. That's a little more lay level. And I really loved the idea uh, when I saw the first few books came out, because um, especially as I teach, I want to assign those longer ones. But I always find that I don't have room to even in class mm -hmm. and lead like book studies at a church with men and women and things like that. And those books are just a little too in depth sometimes for uh, handing out to people. And so my interest in this series came from, I just thought it was a great idea for a series, mm -hmm. give a little more lay level, shortened form of biblical theology. So um, because as you said, I had done my work in kingdom for my dissertation, just in Matthew. So I hadn't really done any biblical theology of the kingdom at that point, but um, obviously I thought a lot about it. I pitched to Dane Ortland and Miles Van Pelt that I would do a kingdom book and um yeah they accept it and what i'm really trying to do in that book is communicate the rootedness or we could even say the groundedness or the material nature of the kingdom 
which does jive a little bit with my what I did for my dissertation. Um, part of what I'm responding to in that book, and I did write it not in terms of like a scholarly book, but I am responding to something in the background. It's basically, um, basically Ladd, who I love on the kingdom in one sense, and another another sense, George Eldon Ladd many times would say that the kingdom is kind of this dynamic reign or the sovereignty aspect. And even one of my favorite commentators on Matthew, he said it's better to translate Basileia uh, kingdom in Matthew as like rule or reign rather than kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so a big part of my book on the kingdom was trying to get the, the two senses that I think are actually not talked about as much, especially in evangelicalism which are um, not so much the power aspect, but the people in place, which gives it, um, as I said, kind of this rootedness or this concrete nature of the kingdom. I think when um, the disciples and Jews in the first century and Jews in the Old Testament heard the term or the concept of kingdom, they thought about things in real life in terms of not just this kind of abstract sovereignty. So, So part of that, most of that book was really trying to get people who would read it to see that the kingdom envelops everything that they do. Mm. And so uh, when Jesus promises that the kingdom is here and it's also coming in the future, that he's promising them food and walls and houses and families, and uh, it speaks to all of life. And so uh, my own experience, it came really from my own experience of studying the kingdom when I heard a little bit more of the systematic theology answered what the kingdom was like God's sovereignty, I was like, well, that doesn't really help me. Cause I just kept on thinking when I read it in the gospels, mm-hmm. okay, the kingdom is God's sovereignty, but that didn't give me like handles to, to really understand what early Jews were hoping in, in terms of the kingdom. They weren't just hoping in God's sovereignty. Yes. God's sovereignty certainly brings the kingdom and that's certainly a part of it. But I think if you just take that one piece of it, and miss that God's sovereignty or God's rule through his servant Jesus, which comes only through sacrifice, is meant to create a people in a place, then you're kind of missing the point of that sovereignty in some sense. Um, The way that God gets glory through bringing the kingdom is by rescuing his people and giving them a land to live in, uh, which the land obviously points, or I think points to the new heavens and new earth in the Old Testament. So, all that to say, I was just trying to give kind of a more concrete notion of the kingdom in that book. And um, yeah, so I don't just do Matthew in that book. I, I trace it through the whole storyline of scripture. Um, and t- there's two, maybe I can mention two other things I do in that book that are maybe a little more unique is that whenever I see biblical theologies of concepts, um, it's very easy to skip the wisdom literature and the epistles. Yeah, And I really, try to emphasize those and give them as much time as the other narrative portions. And I understand why that's done because you've got those kind of key covenant scenes where you speak of Adam and Abraham and then maybe Noah and David and the new covenant and then Jesus. And then you usually just jump to the end revelation. Um, and what I wanted to do is kind of point out how if we're going to do biblical theology, we need to make sure that we're not skipping over those other portions yeah. that don't quite fit sometimes in our narrative structure as well, um, because I actually do think they fit. It's just we don't speak of them as much. So there are a few. I mean, there is a lot of different things, obviously, going into that project, but those are a few of them. Yeah. So that, that part of the epistles and the wisdom and that kind of stuff that plays into the ethics of living in light of the kingdom and in light of the new creation now, not just 
thinking about either, oh, God's going to fix it all, or I'll be in the kingdom of heaven, a.k.a. heaven one day. Right, right, yeah. And so when you think about the wisdom literature and that, that concept is even being challenged in terms of is it a literature or is it a wisdom mm-hmm. concept? But you think of if Solomon wrote some of it, um, this is the king who's writing how to live life in the land under the wisdom of the Torah, mm-hmm. right? So the kingdom, Yahweh gives the Torah to his people to instruct them how to live in the land. And then the kings are supposed to meditate upon the Torah and the wisdom that they should garner from Yahweh through the Torah, they then pass on to the people in the Proverbs and the Song of Songs, so forth and so on, in the Psalms, David. So you think of these kings who are actually instructing people how to live through this unique literature, and that becomes a huge part of, like, here's what it looks to looks like to embody this kingdom life. And then the epistles, uh, Paul's speaking to kingdom communities, and I don't remember the three concepts I used, but it's something like faith. I think I used the, the concept of faith, love, and hope. And so he's, he's telling them the way you enter into this kingdom is through faith. The way that you live in this kingdom is in love. And then what you do is you also hope in the mm. future coming in the kingdom. So just using those concepts and saying this is still, um, even though Paul in the Old Testament, uh, if you look at it, they don't use the language of kingdom that much. Uh, kingdom of God is hardly in the Old Testament, and Paul uses it very few times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's this kind of encompassing concept that they're all speaking under. I mean, I'm studying Acts right now, and Paul keeps summarizing his message a few times as, I preach to you the kingdom, I mm-hmm. preach to you the kingdom. So if you let Acts inform the epistles, you see that Paul's message that he's explained about Jesus as the sacrifice um, is the kingdom message. So. And that's a, the portion that I haven't spoken about. The only way the kingdom comes is not through this kind of power through the sword, but the, the power comes through the cross. And mm. that's, the, that's the startling thing about the story of the scriptures is how he redefines what power is. It's power through the cross, through sacrifice, um, which is what Paul is going to pick up in terms of what does it mean to take up your cross? It's suffering, um, just like the Lord suffered. Yeah, that's good. And so you've been working a little bit on a book. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about it quite yet or not, but a book on the Ascension. Uh, we don't have to talk about yeah. details about it, but what are you what are you learning or reading on that in relation to what you're talking about, about Jesus's Ascension? I'm sure there's a connection there. Yeah, yeah, there is a connection. Um, <laughs> everything's connected. Amen. Uh, somehow. So, <laughs> so I... Um, I'm, I started a commentary on Acts, and I was writing the introduction and thinking about theological themes. And one of the things that stuck out to me with Acts is just the importance of the ascension for the narrative kind of structure and how Jesus keeps kind of appearing in all these places in Acts. And so sometimes we, we think of Acts as, okay, well, Jesus is gone, and now the church takes over. But that's not really the portrait Acts gives. Actually, Jesus is still present um, he, he both appears and then he sends his spirit a- and acts begins with the ascension. So it's not that I had, um, not <laughs> obviously did not deny that the ascension was important, but I just don't think I had really articulated in my own process, thinking processes, why it was important. Yeah. And, um, the, a few weeks later, or it was when I, I think it was last summer, actually, when I was, I was scheduled to preach at my church and I'm just like the the one of the preachers at our church and I can just pick whatever text I want to do because usually we're going through a series but then I just kind of jump in and do whatever and it's usually based on what I'm writing on so I was just like hey I'm going to do a, a sermon on the ascension 
And because I'm really, I really want to study this more. I want to think about it more. So I did a sermon on the Ascension and I just um, outlined it in terms of prophet, priest, and king. So a little more of a like systematic sermon in mm-hmm. some sense, just to show people the Ascension is really important. Anyways, all that led to um, I'm working on a book, kind of finishing up the first draft, about to turn it in. Just another short book, just like the Kingdom book, actually, in terms of the length, maybe a little bit longer, um, on the Ascension, where I do kind of uh, outline it in terms of prophet, priest, and king, and just trying to impress upon people that this is really the climax of the story of Jesus. Um, He's going to return, and that's going to be the end. But this is the triumph of Christ when he goes, when he ascends into heaven. This is, um, I think the language that I use is that it's the climax and it also, he also continues his work Mm. as prophet and king. So sometimes I think we, we, uh, we think about Jesus's work only in the past and in the future. And we don't so much think about his work in the present. And so Jesus continued to be prophet, priest, and king now and in my book, I say yes, and even in a greater sense. So he's a greater prophet now, even in heaven. He's a greater priest now in heaven. He's a greater king in heaven. And really, my, my book is kind of teasing out how that can be the case. How is it that he, and I, I mean, use John, right? John says it's, or Jesus and John says, it's better if I leave and yeah. I send the counselor to the spirit. And I think one of the big questions we just have to ask ourselves is, why is it better that he leaves? I think naturally for myself, I would say, it's not better if he leaves. <laughs> like <laughs> if that verse wasn't in there, I'd say, no, Jesus, you need to stay here. And likely I think the disciples were thinking the same thing at the beginning of Acts. What do you, why are you going to set up your kingdom now? Let's do this thing. And um, he says, no, it's not time yet. I need to ascend to the father. And so and I, I've just been so impressed in terms of how much of the scriptural story actually climaxes at the ascension. Mm-hmm. Many times we speak about, if we even get to the resurrection, let's put it that way, we stop at the resurrection and there's more after the resurrection, even the church calendar, you have Pentecost and then Ascension, the Ascension festival. And I think for the early church, that was actually kind of the climax of his work. The, the resurrection, the Ascension, they're actually slightly different things. The, the resurrection is he raises from the dead. The Ascension is where he actually vindicates his authority. And I mean, the biggest, one of the things that struck me is working on the biggest Old Testament texts, Daniel 7, Psalm 110, mm-hmm. Psalm 2. Those are Ascension texts. Yep. And if, if you're going to talk about like some of the key, uh, the key passages in the Old Testament, I, I mean, Daniel 7 is just very clearly uh, speaking of Jesus' ascent. And so, I mean, really, this book is trying to impress again upon people this, this the importance of the ascension for the gospel story. Like, let's tell the gospel story and say, uh, or to ask it in the form of a question, if, if you told the gospel story without the ascension, where does that leave it? Hmm. Well, it leaves it incomplete. There, you don't, in some sense, you don't have a gospel story. That's the vindication of his authority. Mm-hmm. Yes, the resurrection is in one sense, but um, going to the right hand of the Father is God the Father saying, uh, yes, I, I bring you into my power and now you sit at my right hand. And so it, it's just such a huge part of the story that I, I don't think it's spoken of enough. You mentioned it there at the end and I was thinking, you know, two reasons. You mentioned both of them as I was thinking about them. One, at least at least me growing up in evangelicalism, I got the the gospel is that Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live, died the death you deserve, and rose again to give you new life. And it stops there. 
So you got that side of it as right. sort of how the gospel is presented. Then you got, you mentioned the church calendar. That's the other one where really the big climactic moments in most, at least evangelical church calendars are Christmas and Easter. That's about it. Easter, so you, it's over. That. Like yeah. we're done, you know? I don't, I don't mean to put, I, I have my, the guy who preaches, well, I'm a fellow elder with him and I'm having him read the book just to give me some feedback too. And he's like, hey, you're preaching Ascension Sunday this year now because he just read the book. And I was like, oh, great. So I got another <laughs> One more, um, one more disciple. That's right. But it is true. It's like you, the, the, the narrative is not over yet. And even though Luke's the only one who gives a narrative account of it, so it's only account, the only narrative account is at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. That could be part of the reason we don't speak about it as much. But at the end of Matthew, you have Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. That's, mm-hmm. that's clearly from Daniel 7, 13, 14. And so he's actually alluding to the ascension text of the Old Testament, implying the ascension, even though not narrating it. And I think if you go through many of the epistles and many of much of the New Testament, it might not be as explicit as maybe you were expecting, but again and again, they're actually speaking of it. And uh, I mean, I, just, I could talk forever about this, but you look at Peter's sermon in Acts 2, um, you have like one verse on his life, one verse on Jesus's death. And then the rest of the sermon is resurrection, essential. And that's like a good, I don't know how many verses, but it's like 10 to 12 verses on resurrection, ascension. He's quoting from the Old Testament and just seeing what he emphasizes on the Pentecost sermon. Here's what you need to know. Jesus Christ lived. He died. Yes. And I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay those things. The last chapter in the book is saying, how does it relate to the incarnation, the cross, um, resurrection? So I don't want to downplay those things. I think if you have a good view of these doctrines they actually all support one another right rather than i don't like sometimes it feels like we just get excited about what we're not talking about (laughs) (laughs) and you just start neglecting other things i don't want to neglect the cross i don't want to neglect the incarnation but what i think this does is as you actually have a good system in terms of systematic theology is it lifts all of these other doctrines it's like filling up filling up a bathtub or whatever right all of the toys well i'm thinking of my kids as they take a bath all of the toys raise up together um and if you don't if you don't have a good theological grammar for these things you actually don't understand the importance of say the incarnation uh the ascension is the continuing incarnation of jesus and so it's actually affirming his Mm -hmm. bodily state Mm -hmm. um in a way that, yes, the resurrection does in one sense. In another sense, he's bringing his new bodily state into God's presence. And I wonder if there's some, so I don't know, I haven't teased this out completely, but you think of the Old Testament themes of um, they want to see God, but they can't because it's like too powerful for them or overwhelm them. Maybe there's something about Jesus's resurrected body um, that we will also have that body that can then behold the glory of the Lord because mm. it's, it's been transformed. Uh, so anyways, I, I, yeah, that's not something I'm writing on. I just started <laughs> along those lines and thought, wow, maybe there's something here with now he's in the presence of God. He's beholding his glory as the God man in well, you, a unique sense. You just gave yourself another book idea. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Well, no, it's funny. I uh, I did a Q and A with the youth group at our church, and it was probably four four or five weeks ago. And um, they had asked one of the questions they had asked was, you know, okay, if Jesus resurrected bodily, and then he ascended, does that mean that there is a physical body in heaven? And how does that even work? Mm. And I said, you know, some of yeah. it's, some of it's speculation at some point, but my kind of gut reaction is to say, 
you know, in Genesis 1, heaven and earth were together because there was no sin. Sin causes separation between the two. You know, God says, like, you can't dwell with sin, etc. A lot more there than that. But there's that, sim- that general idea that there wasn't a separation between the physical and spiritual like there is now because of sin. Right. And that Jesus, yep. being the perfect sinless man who ascended in a glorified body, can actually sit in the presence of God that no other material thing can until the final right. resurrection because sin hasn't been eradicated. Right. Yeah, that, that question is a great question. The only... I mean, the only piece that I've kind of spoken about in my book in terms of like, where is Jesus in terms of, uh, he's obviously in heaven, but is that a real place or is mm-hmm. that kind of a spiritual thing? Well, it can't be completely spiritual, like you said, because Jesus has a body. Yep. Is there a real throne? Well, I don't know. When you get the visions of, of heaven, it seems to be almost this symbolic imagery. But we don't want to take that symbolism too far because, again, Jesus is the God-man. So... Uh, in one sense, it's a it's a it's a specific located place. In another sense, the heavens in the scripture are portrayed as where God is actually the the highest heavens. Right, it's the place that transcends all other places. So, I, I, in some sense, I think we have to say um, it transcends our notions of space and time. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. In another sense, it it exists within those. Yeah, you can make sense of it on the basic level of clearly, there's a physical and spiritual meeting there because Jesus didn't leave his yes. body and we're not Gnostics. So you can say That's that, right. but then That's there's right. so much more that you can't say, like you're saying. So Yeah. And I like the, the language of um, it's the control room of, of, of the universe. Hmm. So that Jesus is now in the control room of the universe where God the Father is. Hmm. And his revelation gives the picture of the elders, the angels, uh, the seraphim. Everything is there. And Jesus is now in that control room, actually ordering things according to the purpose of God the Father as the God-man-servant king. I could go on that forever, too. Yeah, that's so good. Um, Well, let's do a a shift here to your uh, book on Matthew that's coming out soon uh, with Baker Academics. It's called uh, Matthew, Disciple, and Scribe. So the first, there was the first gospel and the portrait of Jesus. So um, you talk in there, I mean, you know, it's not out yet, so I haven't read it yet, but um, you have this kind of idea of Matthew as him writing the gospel as part of him fulfilling the Great Commission and sort of carrying on the story of the Bible. Is that a, is that a fair? Yeah, that kind of frames the whole thing. So I'm using Matthew 13:52, um, which says, uh, this is in kind of in the midst of Jesus's kingdom parables, right at the middle of the gospel. And um, Jesus says, therefore, every teacher of the law or um, every like, trained trained scribe who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom treasures new and old. Hmm. So throughout history, early interpreters and modern interpreters have said, this is probably a picture of Matthew. Matthew is this disciple in the Greek. It's actually um, a disciple, a discipled scribe. And so I'm using those two terms disciple trained is kind of what our usually our english translations do is that matthew is this trained scribe or this discipled scribe underneath his teacher of wisdom who is jesus who has taught him how to interpret jesus's own life um, through the lens of the new and the old so you have these key texts in matthew where jesus is obviously portrayed as this teacher par excellence. So you have the five discourses. Um, and I think he's a wisdom teacher. That's one of the themes I pull on. He's a wisdom teacher, mm-hmm. especially from Matthew 13. 
and that he he gives the wisdom of the Torah to Matthew to say, the only way you can understand me is to understand the old and understand how I fulfill the old in the, and I'm the new. Does that make sense? So that's the treasures new and old. Yeah. Um, and this seems to make sense to me of a lot of what Matthew's doing with his narrative in terms of even Matthew 23. The scri- he, he, Jesus keeps condemning the scribes and the Pharisees for not interpreting the law correctly. And why don't they interpret it correctly? Because they don't see it as pointing to Jesus. And so he says, you've corrupted the Torah. You haven't understood it correctly because you don't understand that I'm the fulfillment of it. You don't understand. So you think even of Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it was said, but I say to you, he comes in as kind of the true interpreter of the Torah. So um, he castigates these scribes and these Pharisees, these teachers of the law. And then he creates, my argument is that he creates a new scribal school. And one of those people are Matthew, is Matthew. And he, Matthew, is the one who writes down this gospel. And thereby you think about um, the Great Commission. What are they supposed to do? Go out and teach everything that he has commanded them. So you've got this kind of teaching function of the scribe, writing, teaching, and that Matthew is teaching us through his gospel um, about his teacher of wisdom through the lens of the new and the old. So the way that he actually structures his whole narrative, uh, his whole gospel, is that he pairs the new and the old again and again, saying you actually can't understand Jesus if you don't understand the old, but also don't understand how the new completes or fulfills the old. Hmm. And so that kind of Matthew as the scribe and Jesus as the teacher of wisdom is the frame around my book. And then in the middle, I say, well, what is it? Let's, let's see how the scribe kind of performs his work. So I think the first section I titled the scribe described, and then the second section is the scribe at work. And so with the scribe at work, I do what, what people have done before in some sense, but I do it slightly differently in terms of Jesus is the new David, Jesus is the new Abraham, Jesus is the new Moses, Jesus is the new Israel. But what's distinct about my project is not only the frame, but I try to trace kind of the narrative presentation of each of these figures. So I want to tie uh, David to the kingdom, Moses to the Exodus, hmm. uh, Abraham to family, and then Israel to the exile theme uh, and, and return from exile theme. And so I, I want to trace it to kind of the large events, in that, if that makes sense, that tie closely to those names admitting that these things all interweave ultimately, right? But when I say the narrative, um, there's a sense in which Matthew is actually tracing something with David. So what I really didn't want to do is just say, hey, David appears here, 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 here. Jesus is the new David. No, I want to say, I I asked questions like, why does David appear? Why does Jesus appear like David at the beginning in this way? And why does he appear like David at the end in this way? And what is the narrative development of that? Does that make sense? Yep. Um, so I'm not just, I, I really didn't want to just take titles. I wanted to see narrative development through the whole thing. So that, that's kind of the goal of the project. It's, yeah, it's out. I think it's out in August. We're just kind of finishing up the final edits. And so how would you, if you were to take it a, a bigger picture, would you say that the other writers are doing a similar thing and see themselves in a similar light? Or is Matthew doing it in a more kind of unique and purposeful way? Like the other gospel writers, is yeah, that what you asked? Yeah. yeah. So uh, obviously the other gospel writers, you could say something similar, but there is something distinct about Matthew in terms of his use, explicit use of the Old Testament. Um, the fact that he's most likely a Jewish author, 
and, and the fact that he um, just the way that he structures his narrative seems to be going so much more, not, not more than the other gospels. I don't want to say more, but at least more explicitly going back to the old Testament to yeah. show certain things. So he uses the word fulfill plerao more than any other author. And then he uses certain terms like son of David more than other authors. And um, he, he just seems not in a better sense, but more concerned with those themes. Um, but certainly you can take this kind of theme and obviously you need to read all the gospels in light of the old Testament. But I do, I do try to make the argument carefully that Matthew is distinct in his focus upon this. Um, so one of the ways I, this is uh, when I teach Matthew, I go a lot back to the old Testament. When I teach Mark, I actually go a lot to Greco Roman stuff just because I think it was written to believers in Rome. Now that doesn't mean Mark is not alluding to the old Testament. Of course he is. Uh, it's all over the place. But there are slightly different emphases, and you can see that in how they tell, tell their stories. So um, I, in no way am I saying the other gospel writers don't do this. I, I just would say Matthew is uniquely doing this. Yeah, well, I've always heard the, the sort of cat, uh, characters, or is it caric, I could say the word, characterization of, uh, of Matthew, that he's kind of the Jewish gospel, and then Mark is sort of the Roman gospel. You know, John's the, the high, the more theologically adept gospel, or whatever you want to say. Uh, but it seems like the way that you're the way that you're positioning it is not just saying, oh, it's a Jewish gospel, but you're really laying out sort of how that works. And and so how does that how does that relate to? Do you deal with this at all in terms of of what he borrows from Mark and how there's the interconnections between them? And then does that help you decide where he's a little bit more unique? Or are you not too concerned with that stuff? I do that occasionally. Like if he mentions a name more than Mark or Luke, um, I don't do as much actually uh, what I'd call like horizontal reading. Yeah. I do a little bit more vertical reading. I do horizontal reading if it helps me see, hmm, that is interesting that Matthew doesn't speak of Jesus as an exorcist as much as in Mark. I wonder why that is. Um, so there's a few times that I do that, but for the most part, I'm just trying to read the narrative of Matthew is how he's given it. And it does help to compare. I'm not saying it doesn't help, but um, so for example, like the unique material in Matthew one and two sets up Jesus as this Davidic King. Uh, chapter one is about what, who is his family? And then chapter two is about where did he, where did his family travel when he was younger? Well, my argument is that actually, if you look at the places that he travels, he begins in Bethlehem, um, then he goes through Egypt and then he goes through Rama and then up to Nazareth. I think Matthew's setting up the narrative in terms of kind of this exile or going up to the Northern kingdom to reunite the kingdom as the true King. Mm -hmm. So this Nazareth is in Galilee and they call it Galilee of the Gentiles. And he's born in Bethlehem, which is the city of the King. And then he's kicked out. And really for the whole, all of Matthew, he doesn't come back to Jerusalem until the very end to die. Mm. So you could, the way I describe it is really Matthew's painting and Rama. I mean, Rama in the Old Testament was the place where they went into Babylonian exile. It's actually mentioned in Jeremiah. So for him to go through Rama and to have Rachel weeping for her children there is clearly pointing to some sort of exile theme. So I think Matthew's setting this up is here's, here's the Davidic king. Here he is. Here's the problem. He's going to go into exile. And then when he returns to his city, he's not going to, he's actually not going to be enthroned in the way that you think he is. Mm -hmm. He's going to be um, crucified. But if you actually look at David's life, David is on the run all the time. He's on the run from Saul. He's on the run from Absalom. 
And so as Herod seeks after Jesus, he's not just a type of Pharaoh, but he's a he's he's actually confirming that Jesus is a type of David who's yeah. who's always kicked out of his own city. And so I think Matthew's looking at us and winking at us and saying, you didn't expect Jesus to be ministering mainly in Galilee? Well, look <laughs> at David. David's all over the place. So God, see what I mean by narrative development? Yeah. You kind of view it in bigger chunks. Um, and that, that all Matthew 1 and 2 is so distinctive to Matthew. That's in none of the other Gospels. And so he's, he's definitely doing something unique there to set up his narrative. Yeah, that's really helpful. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, okay, let's finish off with another very serious question. You're a Vikings yeah. fan. You're, uh, <laughs> let's talk about the Trailblazers. No. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, we, yeah, we need to talk about Trailblazers too. We need to talk about that okay, too. Okay, okay. Yeah, Vikings fan, yeah, go That's ahead. very timely. Uh, uh, Vikings fan, so, uh, so you, had the, you had the miracle catch against the Saints two years ago. Which, uh, which was posted online of you and your dad freaking out about that together in the living room. And, uh, and I happened to be at, yeah. there for the Bethlehem Conference the next morning. And it was, it was actually really cool being in Minneapolis the next morning. Because that is like, I mean, on the train station everywhere, that is all anybody could talk about. So it was really cool. But yeah. then the John same, Piper was even talking about it. Probably not. But yeah. I was going to say that's when you know it's that's when you know it's serious. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, then last year, then you know, in the playoffs again this year, we got the the Saints. They they lost the heartbreaker to you guys, and then they had the passing interference call against the Rams. Do you feel bad for them at all, yeah. or are you just saying, "Hey, just you got to make the play"? No, Sorry. <laughs> I don't like the Saints at all. I don't. I never felt bad, bad for them. You know why I don't like the Saints at all? And I'm sorry to all you New Orleans fans, but one of the most heartbreaking games I've ever been a part of is when we played the Saints. I forget what year it was, but when we had Brett Favre, and we were playing for the NFC Championship to get to the Super Bowl, yep. and. We, the Vikings, go look at the stats. The Vikings outplayed the Saints like crazy, but we turned over the ball like four times. And so it was a game. But at the end of the game, um, Brett Favre threw an interception towards the end of the game, which sealed kind of the game. And after that game, it came out that they were bounty hunting. <laughs> Favre and his like ankle on his knee, and they had injured him that game. And I think part of the reason, I'm not giving it, Brett Favre throws a lot of interceptions, I know. But part of the reason he threw that interception is he was hobbling around. And so ever since they've bounty hunted quarterbacks, and I knew that that was the case. <laughs> um, I remember at the beginning of that game, Howie Long said the Vikings should win this game, but it's destiny that the Saints win because that was the year of Katrina. Yep. It was right after. 2006. And yeah. I was like, Howie Long, you're a prophet. And uh, <laughs> it was true. Vikings should have won that game. So all that to say, ever since that game, I've never liked the Saints, although – I respect Drew Brees. He's amazing. So it's hard for me to dislike Drew Brees. I just don't like the team. <laughs> I was happy, so happy when um, Diggs caught that thing. And I was, I was, that was one of the best sports moments of my life. I bet it was. The second, one of the second best sports moments of my life was Damian Lillard shot against um, uh, who did they play? Now I'm already forgetting who they played. I'm just going to let it sit they there play. because you should okay, remember. Okay, yeah. see. It's his rival. Okay, see. Yeah, and uh, man, he, he just hit a 37-foot 37, 37 three to clinch the series. I mean, only Michael Jordan has hit two of those, and now Damian Lillard has hit two of those. Well, and Paul George, I'm not saying and, he's not. And Paul George said afterward it was a bad shot, but Damian Lillard is the best in the league at that shot, so it wasn't a bad shot for Damian Lillard. Lillard said that was bad defense, and I kind <laughs> of agree with him. You know why? If it's three seconds left, you better get up on that guy. Yeah, you don't wait for him. Yep. He's not going to go anywhere. There's nowhere to go. 
I would say it's a bad shot for 97% of even the NBA. For Steph Curry, for Damian Lillard, for maybe a few others, mm -hmm. it's not a bad shot. Well, this so. is going to come out af probably after the finals. So I wanted to give you a I chance know. to be a prophet right here. Do you want to predict the Trailblazers, uh, maybe not their championship, but do you want to predict how far they go? Because right now they just beat okay. Oklahoma City and they're not playing. <laughs> they're, they're, they're playing the Nuggets, which, is, which they should win. Yeah, they're playing the Nuggets. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, they should. Uh, here's the deal. They're playing the Nuggets next, and the Nuggets have a good inside game, and our, our center is injured. So I think we, we might struggle against the Nuggets on the inside. If we can, if we can play our top game, we'll beat the Nuggets. But if, the, if, if we ever get off our top game, I think the Nuggets have a good chance of beating us. You, you know, with like last second shots, either that sets you up great for the next series or you just nosedive yeah. the next series. Yeah, that, that, the, the emotion, you can't top the emotion ever again. My, my guess is that my, here's my hope. Well, my, my hope is that they get to the finals, but my guess is that hope, maybe they beat the Nuggets and then they meet the Rockets or the Warriors. I'm hoping it's the Rockets. I really don't want the Warriors again. And then they lose to one of those teams, which I would be happy with that. I, I would like to see them go further. To be honest, though, I mean, I'm going to cut them a little bit. They don't have great team ball right now. They just kind of have two great shooters mm -hmm. who create their own shots. And if they're not hot, um, we just they don't have a ton of open looks. They just make crazy shots. So you can watch them through the playoffs and you'll be like, man, these guys are incredible. And then the next five minutes, they'll miss all of them. And you're like, maybe they're not so good. They just don't have that like team ball that I think will take them as far as they need to go. They yeah, live or die true. by the like one-on-one -on -one play, which is what Harden does, I guess. But well, yeah. he hadn't won anything. Anyway, so. sports talk. This is like Jim Rome sports talk now. <laughs> I love it. Hey, I, I will say I've been interviewing people on podcasts for three years now, but between Word Matters and this one, and I throw a lot of softballs to guests, and I threw you that Bounty Gate softball, and you crushed it. I've never seen anybody <laughs> crush a softball like you did in that in that uh, moment. I my I mean my second career I want to be on sports talk radio so you know this is this is the way it is. <laughs> hey, I uh, my when I was in high school that was my like when I wrote down what I want to do with my life I wanted to be on Sports Center I wanted to be Dan Patrick like he was my oh, he was awesome. my goal so you and I share that in common. That's right, that's right. And if you you should look up what Damian Lillard said up today or yesterday about the pressure on the playoffs. He's just a stand up dude. If you read his story, I think there was some story of him at Weber State. Um, he, he was driving around a car that the windows wouldn't even roll down. And like he, when he went through the drive through, he'd open the door to grab his food. Like he just came from humble beginnings. And I think he understands like he, he's privileged to get to this point and he understands real life. So he's just a, he's a great dude. Yeah, He's easy to root for. That's for sure. Yeah. All right, man. Go, well, go Blazers. Yeah. Let's we'll stop boring everybody with this one. If they haven't tuned out already, <laughs> they'll, uh, but I had fun doing right. it. So that's right. All right. Yeah. Thanks Patrick. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Brandon.